This is Revelation, Revelation class. So let's begin in chapter 1. Now there are different approaches to this book, and you may run into different people who have a different idea. You may read different things, uh, and they, they will give you a different perspective of different things. There are some who believe that the events already took place in the book of Revelation throughout church history. Uh, Some believe that Revelation covers the whole of history from the apostolic time to the end time. Some think it's just a setting forth of spiritual realities under this symbolism describing events that took place either in the past or future. But there is another way that, and it's called the, the, the futurist, where they believe that the major part of the book refers to, to future events, and I believe that that is, is the correct way to look at it. Uh, some of this, we'll see the first three chapters dealing with the churches. Of course, we know that apply to the churches in Asia and so on, and that is past, and also it's been present. When you move into other chapters, toward the middle chapters uh, of the book, I don't know how anybody can say that some of those things took place. Uh, I I don't know. People have the views they have. I I don't know. Now, the big problem, as I see it, whenever someone sees the Lord, you can see it uh, in Ezekiel, I see the Lord high and lifted up and his train fills the temple, and Isaiah, and so on. When you come out from seeing the Lord in a special way, that is something that is very difficult to put into words. John is is caught up in the Spirit, and he sees things, Paul says, that cannot be uttered. I can't explain to you what I saw. John is taking what the angel is showing him and he's trying to find the words to pen what he's seeing to bring some kind of idea on what he's he's experiencing and seeing. For example, if someone from that era or John were living today and they would see a helicopter, for example. How would they be able to describe what it is? There is no word in their language. There is nothing that they have ever seen or heard of that could, could even relate to what that is or to a computer. So John is seeing things that are, are going to take place in the spectrum of time and he sees this, and the Lord tells him, write it in a book. And he uses this terminology to try to, to just actually paint some type of picture of what he's seeing. But for the most part, some of the things he sees are totally hidden. We won't see a lot of different things in this book. Now, if you have come to this class and you are thinking that I'm going to learn about the end times and I'm going to understand some of the symbolism in this book, let me tell you right now, you've come to the wrong class. 
I don't know what some of these things mean. And frankly, it doesn't really matter because when they begin to take place, we will know. Unless there is some specific revelation for some purpose related to some of the, the, the chapters, you know, related to the beast and the second beast, the false prophet. Unless there is something there that the Lord wants us to see, then you know, we won't see it. I can't tell you in the 30-some years I've been a Christian how many times I have heard that this particular individual was the Antichrist and this was the beast. I remember when they built that supercomputer in Brussels and they said that that thing could do all these super calculations and, and that it could even talk and all the, the prophecy people said, it's the beast, it's the beast. And the enemy gave power to the beast so it could speak to the image. And so we can speculate when it comes to a lot of these things, but I'm not into speculation. I will show you what I see, and I will bring out some different things as maybe possible. But the symbolism, we're not going to spend a lot of time with any of that. The first three chapters of the book deal with or actually chapter 2 and 3 of the, the seven churches, and we're going to spend a lot of time with them. What goes on here in the beginning of the book is, is quite something, if I'm seeing it correctly. Much of what we read here is symbolic. For example, John sees Jesus in the midst of the golden candlesticks. He sees someone as the lamb in the midst. Well, that doesn't mean he's a literal lamb. He didn't see a four-legged animal there. John sees the sacrifice, or he sees Jesus, who had died for all mankind, and even though Jesus had the figure of a man, he could understand and perceive that he was the lamb. See, so that particular thing there, that... Uh, that symbolism is what it is. He compares that, he calls him a lamb, and it has a spiritual application to it. The central thought in the book of Revelation is not end-time prophecy. The central figure in the book of Revelation is not Satan, it's not the Antichrist, it is not the beast, the central figure in the book of Revelation is Jesus Christ himself. So most people, when they approach the book of Revelation, their, their thinking is end-time prophecy. Their thinking is the, the different plagues, the seals, and all the... All, but you have to, to look past that and see who it is for example, that is there to loose the seals. Only one was found, and that was Christ. So as you move through the book of Revelation, and you pay attention to that, you will see the central figure there. All that, that, that is unleashed, the wrath of God, and so on, controlled by the central figure, Jesus Christ. He's there, involved with all of it. So Revelation 
points to the glorified Christ walking among and holding power over everything and everybody, the central figure. Why is Jesus the one who has all power given to him? Why? Why isn't there someone else? Now, I want to begin in verse 1. And my question is this. Is Jesus omniscient? That means all-knowing. Omniscient means the power to know all things. Is he <coughs> omniscient? Okay. Having all knowledge. Was he always omniscient? Kind of an odd question, huh? Now, if this is what this verse is saying, this is probably the most sombering scripture in the entire book, if not the entire Bible. Let's begin. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him. What Jesus gave up for you and I, I don't believe we realize. When he decided to, to leave his throne in heaven and to come to earth for you, what he did, for the most part, man doesn't know. And for the most part, Christians have not really grasped it. Now I'll turn to Philippians 2, verse 6. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus, who was seated in heaven, chose to leave that place, to leave that position, and to come to earth being born as a man. Now, my question is this. What did he give up? Look in Luke, Luke chapter 2, verse 51. And this is speaking of Jesus. Whenever, remember when he was separated from his parents? And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. So Jesus had to increase in wisdom. He had to learn similar or if not the same as, as we learn from the Spirit of God. So when you go in Revelation here, and it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God the Father gave unto him. He had to, to receive that, which means to me, that he gave up, I don't know for all time, I don't know, a portion of his Godhead, I don't even know how to say it, his, um, that characteristic, 
of omniscient? Why, why doesn't it say that Jesus Christ gave unto his servant this revelation? It doesn't say that. And it doesn't say that because the Lord wants to show you something in there. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which the Father gave him. And he received that, and he was able to receive it in its entirety because of his heart, because of the sinless life, because of the way he walked, because of his obedience, because of him going to the cross and dying when he didn't want to, because of the difficulty. For you and I, he put certain things aside that I don't know if maybe he'll get that back. I don't know. All I know is what it says, that the Father gave him the revelation. He gave him something that Jesus didn't have. God gives you a revelation that's something you didn't have. Now, that doesn't make him any less God. It just makes him the sacrificial lamb. And I think that's quite something. Now, turn to John 3. See, how, how am I, how are you going to see Jesus as he is walking among the candlesticks? See, John saw that. Can we catch a, a picture, a glimpse of the Lord tonight? You know, can we walk out of here to, with something more than we came in with? Is there something that the Lord can give us, a view of him that we have never seen before, that can stay with us, not till we get home, not till the end of the week, but that the Lord has so impressed us that something is etched upon our heart, upon our spirit, that we see Jesus a little different than we did before. In Amos 3.7 it says, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he shall reveal his secrets unto his servants, the prophets. And Jesus called himself a prophet. He said to the Pharisees, he said, Is not a prophet, he does not get honor in his hometown. Who's referring to himself. And so the father also, and we know this, the wisdom that he, he received was from the father. The father was pouring into Jesus for 30 years. So much that it was time then to go out into ministry. Jesus went when he was a young lad, and the father moved him to go back with Mary and Joseph because the time was not yet. And so the remainder of that time, 12, 14, 16 years, the Spirit of God coming from the throne of God, through the Spirit of God, things being poured into Jesus, into Jesus, into Jesus, so that he becomes so full, has so much in him, that now he goes into his ministry and, and three years does more than any other person that was ever born. See, today, you know, we want to be saved for four years, go to school, and then go out to ministry and, and, and you know, be a pastor or evangelist or whatever, and we're going to change the world. Jesus spent 30 years preparing and three years in ministry. We had that formula, I wonder what would happen. Spend 30 years being prepared, then go. In John chapter 3, 
verse 32. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. So he had seen and heard, and what he saw and heard, he testified. And see, that's, that's how Jesus did it. See, you and I have to see and hear. It's, it's, it's necessary. It's a necessity. See, we can come to church. We can read the Bible. We can do all these different things. But we must see and hear. Our hearts must be positioned in such a way that the Lord can come and reveal to us certain things. He can come and give us certain things so that we can grow and mature and, uh, and become this, in the stature of Christ that he wants. Now in verse 1, go back into Revelation. So I think that this is very sobering that the Lord may have given up a certain attribute of God for you and I. For all, maybe for all time. I don't know. He may get that back. But it seems to me, as you read the scriptures, you always see Jesus. You have the Father, and you see the Father giving to Jesus, and Jesus giving that on. And in John 17, you see this oneness between the Father and Jesus, and he says he wants that with his followers with the believers. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. Now, God gave it unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Now, when he says shortly come to pass, his shortly is different than our shortly. In Psalm 90, for you a thousand, a thousand years are as a passing day, as, a brief, as brief as a few night hours. In King James, it says a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand. So that which will come to pass shortly. And I'm sure that whenever some of those early Christians read this, they probably thought it was going to be in their lifetime. And now it's 2,000 years later. So the shortly, God looks at this, and, and he sees the whole thing, and to him, see... God is not in time. See, God is in eternity. See, God exists in the present. See, you as a Christian, you don't exist in the past. You don't live in the past. I mean, a person can live in the past in their mind. Or in some of the things they do, they can try to live in the past. But you don't live in the past, and you don't live in the future. When, where do you live? You only live in the present because you are like God and God lives in the present. So God's perspective of things is not as ours. See, we are birthed into this world and time affects us. You know, we are affected, you know, time flies, time goes fast, all that. I have to be here. But as a Christian... The Lord is to develop you inside so that you have a realization. Okay, you function here in this world. You, you go to your job, you do this, you do that. 
And all that is in the space of time, you know, eight hours you work. But yet, if you can catch this, you in your spirit are not bound by time and you are not living according to time. You are living in the now. You are in eternity, so to speak, now within. And you can kind of get a handle, or that's not the right way to say it. You can kind of get a feel for that so that you can see beyond your limited years here on earth. So when he says, which shall shortly come to pass, it, it, it really is not relevant. Time is not relative, uh, relevant to God. It's, it's, I mean, he knows certain things that, you know, in history have to occur, and he has his hand on different things, but he's not in a hurry. Have you ever noticed God's not in a hurry? He is not in a hurry. I mean, do you want something? You want to see it take place in a few months or a few years. And God looks back, and he's just, you know, he, he's not in time. He says, okay, well, I see that, and oh, I'll take care of that. But it seems as though he takes his good old time. <laughs> so he says it's going to come to pass shortly. And, okay, they've been saying, you know, I, I've only been around. I've only been a Christian for so many years, but I know what I've heard in so many years. And you hear all these different things. I've heard that the world was going to end many, many times. I've heard that, that we're moving right into the tribulation. And it's going to be in 2004. I heard all these different things. You know, when the millennium, we change into the, the new century, and the millennial, you know, Y2K, the world's coming. All this stuff you hear. See, we need to just... just Push that stuff aside and live in the now. And say, okay, God, teach me of yourself now. Let me see you now, here. And show me what you want me to see. That's all necessary. You don't need to know about when the tribulation, if there's going to be a seven-year tribulation. Oh, oh boy, don't say that. I'll be flogged. It doesn't really matter. Somebody said to me one time, well, this happened a couple times. They said, what do you believe? You pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib? I said, I don't read the trip. <laughs> no. I said, it doesn't really matter. I said, if you live your life for God today, and you allow him to work in your life, and you receive the grace of God today, then it doesn't matter because you'll have what you need to go through whatever comes. And from what I can see, we'll get into Revelation, some of these other chapters, there's some interesting things going to happen. And we don't need to fear them. You know, do you ever fear what may come upon this country? There's a lot of things going on. And it seems that everybody has basically given up. And they've resigned, even people in the world you talk to, and they have resigned their thinking to the fact that we're going down. Now, where did they get that? Very interesting. All the arrows point to 
something, I don't want to say destruction, but things will change. All the errors are pointing. I mean, we will all be affected, all of us. But should we fear that? The things which shall shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Verse 2. Who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. So John bore witness, first of all, by the manner of living, his manner of living, and then also by his speaking. There's always that pattern there. You are to bear witness by your manner of living and then your speaking or whatever. Many Christians want to turn that around and they want to speak. And I have heard this more times than I would like to say. Where you have a Christian who is, you know, mouthing all these things from the Bible and all this different stuff to people in the world and saying all this stuff. And they're saying, and somebody's even said that to me about another person, that how can they, they say those things? Look at the way they live. And the person wasn't a Christian, and they were right. So the true witness, if you want to bear witness for Jesus Christ, it will first be by your manner of living, how you walk as a Christian, first and foremost, and then by your speaking. See, what gives uh, an individual power in their speaking, their preaching, or whatever? Well, there's various things. But one of them is the manner of living, and the manner of living testifies to the word. Or, you know, when the word comes forth, that has a foundation there up under it in the individual, so that their teaching, their preaching, or what they're saying uh, has the power that it should have. Then the Lord can take that and use that however he, he wants. So that, that John here... He is bearing witness, and his witness is true, he says in 1 John. And the reason being is because of how he lived. He walked with the Lord. He didn't do his own thing. He did what the Lord had for him, and he, he walked in that. Verse 3, blessed is he that readeth. Now, I have heard people say, just read the book of Revelation and you'll be blessed because it says if you read the book of Revelation, you'll be blessed. Well, that's not what it says. Well, it says that, but it's not what it says. I mean, just picking up the Bible and reading the book of Revelation is not the blessing. There are individuals who, the one woman who started the atheist movement in this country, sat down in a weekend and read the whole Bible. But does that mean she, because she read that, that she's going to be blessed? No. Because a Christian picks up the book of Revelation, and they read that and say, oh, I'm going to read the book of Revelation, all 22 chapters, because I'm going to be blessed. No. Let's read the whole verse. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein for the time at hand. The three things in that verse all must move together. Readeth, hear, and keep. Now, if you read and you hear 
and then you keep, God has to bless you. See, that's where the blessing is, because now that is moving in your life. It becomes a manner of living for you. You read, you hear, you keep. Uh, in, where is that? Revelation 22. Hold your place there. Go to Revelation 22, verse 7. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecies of this book. You see that? See that? He's saying here, keepeth, 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 because that's the important thing. Now, this word here, keepeth, is a present participle. If you are presently, continually keeping. See, this is something that is going on within you. In your heart, you want to keep the word. You want to do the word. And when you go back to verse 3 here, the word read, hear, and keep are all present participles. Presently, continually reading, hearing, and keeping. Now, if you as a Christian can let that move in your life personally, I guarantee that you will be blessed. No, I don't have to guarantee the word does. But you will be because you're doing things in the order of his word. You have to be blessed. You will be. And then he says at the latter part of verse 3, for the time is at hand. What time? Time for what? Well, of course, the, the time is coming for the fulfillment of these prophecies. Yes, that's true. But the time is at hand for you. See, now is the time for you. Because of what I said, God exists in the now. Have you ever noticed in the scriptures, it says, now is the accepted day. Today is the day of salvation. See, it's all present. So the time is at hand for you, Christian, that you would begin to read, hear, and keep because the time is at hand. If the Lord is going to do in you what he wants to do, and I'm telling you, when we get to another chapter, chapter 4, when you see what the Lord wants to do in your life, I, 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 it's just, I just thinking about it, it's overwhelming to me. So the time is at hand. The time for playing is done as a Christian. We need to be serious with the Lord. We need to come to church with our hearts open to Him. We need to, to have our hearts out so that the Lord can say, I want to put something there. You say, yes, Lord. Put what you will in my heart. The time is at hand for us to walk circumspectly or to walk carefully, the word means. The time is at hand. The time is at hand for you to begin to grow and mature as a Christian. Even if you're younger, the, the process begins. So that the Lord can start to do what he wants to do in our lives. What's he want to do? Well, quite a bit. I, I think about what the Lord has here. And I, I say, Lord, there is no way. And I've been a Christian for many years. And I know he's done some things in my life. And I, and I think, Lord, 
there is no way that I can possibly see that you can do this particular thing in our lives. And, and I know that I can't do it. I know you can't do it. So that kind of leaves him, it leaves it up to him to get the thing done or to get as much done as he can. And, of course, what we can do is walk with him and, and be surrendered and hold our hearts before him. I mean, I function at home. I go to work, but my heart is, is before the Lord. I mean, I try to, to keep, I, I can't explain it. You should be walking as a Christian. If you've been a Christian for a while, you should be walking. I mean, there's a lot of distractions around all the time, and sometimes we need them. But there is to be this realization in your heart, in your spirit of the Lord. And, and the realization that he loves you, he cares for you, and he wants to do something special. See, we don't think he wants to do something. We think he wants to, you know, to kill us. <laughs> he wants to just devastate us. You know, we, don't, we don't see what's at stake here. So the time is at hand. Verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, even though John says... Uh, he, he's writing this to the seven churches. This is from the Lord, and you'll see that in the verse. Grace be unto you and peace from him, from him, from him, which is and which was and which is to come. And he, he I, I believe he does that past, present, future thing to cover the whole of time, to know that, you know, the Lord is much bigger than that whole thing. You know, where, when did God start? I mean, who, who, where's the beginning of God? See, we see the beginning. Well, Revelation, he started in, no, I mean, Genesis. He didn't start in Genesis. It's before Genesis. He never was created. See, we are created beings. We can't relate to that. But what we can relate to is him that is from the past, present, and future. That's okay. That's fine. That's all we need to know that he is the central figure in everything, in all time and even before time. And he will be after everything is removed. From him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, Unto him. Now, there is something very interesting here. I just want to stop and just look at verse 4. This, I believe, shows a pattern, and that pattern is to be realized by us, and our hearts should move in this particular pattern at all times. In verse 4, it says, From him, from Christ. Verse 5, unto him, unto Christ. You, everything comes from him to you and to him. He receives the glory from all that he brings to you and I. From him 
It goes to him. You see that? To him. You live your life to him. Your life came from him. You live your life unto him. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And he hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. So in, in verse 6, he hath made us. See, this was made possible because of what we read in verse 5. See, you become what you become because of what you see in verse 5. Because Jesus was a faithful witness. Jesus came from the throne of God. He left the throne. He came down and he became the faithful witness to you and I. And as he walked upon the earth, he was faithfully witnessing to the Father. He was faithfully witnessing to the life of God. He's faithfully witnessing continually to all those that were around him. He witnessed faithfully to the disciples. And those that followed him also became faithful witnesses. And he says that he hath made us kings and priests. Well, that process there, it would be impossible if Jesus was not the faithful witness to you and I. So you cannot be a, a king and a priest. You, you can't move in certain things. It's all because of him. All because of him. And the faithfulness of Jesus, that characteristic of the Father, seen in Jesus, is in him being moved out from his heart and life to his disciples. Now you and I, if we have had an experience, and I, we, I believe we all have, we have come to him, to Christ. That characteristic alone is to be one that is to be developed in you. You are to become, first of all, faithful, and then a faithful witness. It's, it's probably how that works. You become faithful. Would you become fa- you can become faithful in, in that which is around you. That's where you start. You know, faithful in your home, faithful in your job, faithful at church. You know, faithful in, in whatever you're reading, whatever it is. And then your faithfulness to Jesus will work something in you. You will become a faithful witness to others. And we always think others is, you know, at work or whatever. But, you know, you can be a faithful witness in your home. You know, your children pick up a lot more than you think. So you're not, you don't have to sit around and have Bible studies with them. So you live a life before them, and there is something that is transferred, I believe, from your spirit, and, and that there is in the home, and, and the children will pick up on that. You don't have to tell them. It, it helps to bring them into the church <laughs> big time. But see, if you are faithful and they are sitting under faithful men and women, you, you, you that, that teach the kids, being faithful in your own life and then being faithful to teach, faithful to feed them, there is something that is transferred into their spirit and that helps them. And that will give them direction 
that will give them a, a means or a way of living, a direction to go in in their life. And so they begin now to show the signs of serving the Lord. They can become also a faithful witness. Verse 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. Now, you'll see this in various chapters. How can I say this? I don't even. I remember reading a couple chapters, and if you're looking at the chapter, and all you're seeing is what he's saying, and you're trying to fit that into what you know or into what you think is going to happen, it doesn't fit. Because John, in, in some places, he, he talks about something that occurs. See, he's not giving you a time frame here. He's just penning what he's seeing. And, and what he's seeing is not in any time frame sometimes. So he could be talking about something in the past, and then two verses later, he could be relating something that is a future thing. And we're reading the whole chapter, and we think it's all pertaining to one thing, one area, one future thing, and it may not. So even right here, you can see, Behold, he cometh with clouds. Now, that didn't happen yet. The Lord didn't return. I hope not, but we're still here. <laughs> so you see, he's, he's moving. He's not being bound by one specific time thing. He's, he's, he's moving in different areas. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. Verse 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation. See, he's enduring and suffering the same things uh, as he's saying here to the churches. And companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. I was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was there in prison for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Can you and I be where we don't want to be for the testimony of Jesus Christ and for the word of God? When I first became a Christian, I was single. And I had this desire to go to Bible, Bible college or Bible school. And I came into the church and there was... There was two men, uh, Bud Elder, some of you know him, and another, another man none of you know. And they were both married, and they, they after six months I was in the, the church, they both left. I think Bud Elder went to Zion, and this other man, Jim, he went to Springfield, Missouri to, to Bible school. And I'm thinking, Lord, there they go. What do you want to do with me? And so I had this desire in my heart to go to school, but yet I couldn't move to do that because the Lord had, had fenced me in. 
I was in the Army Reserves at the time, and it was during the Vietnam War, and I couldn't just up and go somewhere else because I had to stay there, here in Pittsburgh. And there was two more years uh, before I was out, and I thought, Lord, what, what do you want me to do? And I never, even though I had that desire in my heart, I didn't do anything because I, I didn't feel any direction to, to go to, to either school or to any school. And so I stayed at the church, and a lot of things happened, and the Lord showed me a lot of things and taught me a lot of things, and I had certain responsibilities that came upon me, and I was struggling and all these different things. And uh, make a long story short, about four or five years later, I can't remember the time frame, but it was some time later, I realized that God had brought the school to me. And I thought, wow. So the Lord can do all kinds of things. I mean, don't limit God. First, Charles Hahn came, and he ministered morning and evening for six months. And then he was a guest speaker quite a bit. And then Pastor Jake came. And when he came, he started the Bible school, and uh, I, I started to attend. And I thought, wow. I had that desire, and I never shared that with anyone. Nobody knew. No, nobody knew that I had this desire to go to Bible school. And here, I started to go to classes, and a couple years later, it, it just dawned on me that the Lord brought the school to me. But can we stay where we don't want to stay. See, I have never liked Pittsburgh. I still do not like Pittsburgh. If it were up to me, I would have moved 30 years ago or, or 35 years ago. But I stayed here for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ, and that's the reason. And I still stay here because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, my question is, can you as a Christian stay where you do not want to stay for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ? Maybe it's in some situation that you want out of, and it's not time for you to get out of it. But can you stay in it for the word of God and the, and the testimony of Jesus Christ? It's the question. See, now, if you want something in God, well... There's all kinds of ways it costs you, but that's okay. The cost is nothing, nothing compared to what you will get. Nothing. But you can't even compare it on the scale. So here he is. He's in the Isle of Patmos for, for the word of God. He's in prison. That's why he's there. The Spirit, the Spirit sent him there. You know, you know, it was the Roman Empire that... You think God has power over the Roman Empire? Or you think the Roman Empire is all-powerful? Well, you look at the, the different um, things related to Paul, and you see how God interve intervened many times. And so here he is, the Spirit sent him. And he says in verse 10, And I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Now, when he says the Lord's Day, that's not necessarily meaning Sunday. 
It actually means the day of manifestation. He, he was in the spirit. Well, I guess if you want to call it Sunday, it's fine. But the Lord's day is the day in which he receives this manifestation, you see. Now turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1. It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth, such a one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth, how that he was caught up into heaven and heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful or not, the word lawful there means possible. It's not possible for a man to utter. So Paul here is caught up in the spirit to the third heaven, and he sees things that are, it's, it's impossible for him to communicate to, to other people what he saw. Now, he, he does communicate that in his epistles, but not in what he saw. He communicates that in, in the work that is done in him through whatever the Lord took him into. He, he, certain things happened in him, in Paul. You, you can't experience the glory of God and it not change you in some way, and you can't experience the glory of God and explain it to someone. I mean, how are you going to explain it? If you see the Lord in it, you ever try to explain something to someone that the Lord showed you, and it's like you're done, and it's like, why did I even say anything? It's because you cannot articulate what you see in spirit. I mean, you can say something, you can describe it, you can talk about it, but to actually put it in a way that, that people will understand, you can't do that because they have to experience it to some degree. I mean... The glory of God, you can hear about the glory of God. You can read about the glory of God. You can have people tell you about the glory of God. The person can tell you their experience and, and them seeing the glory of God. Have you ever read the scriptures and the Lord starts to just unfold this, this, and this, and, you, and all of a sudden you get this picture and you see the glory of God to some degree. How do you explain that to someone? You, you can't. You can't. You tell them you need to read the word, but even that's not going to do it. They have to see it. There are people in this church that see quite a bit. There are other people in the church who come to church, but yet they don't get certain things. Some people get it, other people don't. It doesn't matter how much you hear it. It doesn't matter how many times or how long you hear it. It's, did the Lord open that up to you? See, is that has it become revelation? That's, that's, that's different. But if you have a revelation, you see something, that, that's quite something. You are not going to be able to tell. You can witness to it. You can share it. But people are not going to see it like you see it. They just can't. 
how can they? I'm not saying you shouldn't say anything. I'm just saying that you can't put certain things into word. We are limited by language. See, that which is moving in spirit, we take that and we are limited because of the words we can't describe certain things. There's certain, you know, there are certain Greek words that there is no English equivalent to. So what do you do? How do you explain that Greek word? Well, you have to put ten words into in the Bible, like the Amplified, to explain one Greek word. In some instances, so Paul's caught up. He says, "I, I saw things it's not even possible to to say." And you get bits and pieces of it though throughout his uh, teachings. So here's John, and he's in the spirit on the Lord's Day, on the day of Revelation. So you can have a Lord's Day, not Sunday. You can have a Lord's Day, and that will be the day whenever the Lord comes and really shows you something. You, know, you can be reading the Word and like, whoo, like, wow. You could hear something, and it's like, poof, the light comes on. That's a, a, one way of saying it. It's like, whoo, I see that. I see it. And you try to explain it to somebody, you can't explain it. You see it. See, as long as you see it, you catch it in here in your spirit. That's the important thing. That's the value of teaching and studying the Word of God. It will put things in you that you do not understand. You'll understand them up here in your mind. You'll catch it in your spirit. So you come to class. You are to catch things in spirit. That's what, that's what happens. Have you ever left church and maybe that afternoon somebody say, what, what, did, what did Jim preach on? Or come to a class and say, what was that class on? It's like, see, that, that whole thing, if, if the Spirit of God is taking that out, it bypasses your intellect. It goes into your, into your spirit. Then, after some time, and, and sometimes it's five to ten years, you get this revelation, now you understand it. But it may take five or ten years to get it from your from your heart to your head. And that's true. There are things I heard years ago, and I thought, what in the world is that person saying? I, I don't I don't understand it. I mean, I understand the words he's using, but what in the world is he saying? I heard it. Somehow I believed it. But the understanding of it, I mean, really understanding it, just beyond me. Then five or ten years later, it's like, ah, oh, ah, oh, I heard something from Revelation. We're going to be, I'm going to be teaching. You're going to hear it. And I heard it and I thought, what in the world? <laughs> what is, I mean, it's like when I heard it, wow, I didn't get it. Now I see it to some degree. And it's like, whoa, well, it only took ten years or five years. Well, let's continue on here. So he hears a voice behind him, uh, a great voice as of a trumpet. Now, that doesn't mean the Lord, when he talks, he sounds like a trumpet. See, that's, that's symbolic there. That means that this is... See, a, a trumpet has a specific sound that is identifiable. 
you can't mistake another instrument for a trumpet. When you hear a trumpet, you know a trumpet, you'll always know a trumpet. So John hears his voice and it's as a trumpet. It has a distinct sound to it, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. Now from verse 10 through verse 17, John is going to see something here. He's going to see the risen, glorified Christ. He's hearing him behind him. He hears what he says. He says, what you see, write in a book, send it to the seven churches. Now, he he hears this. Now, John, which is a normal reaction, he's going to turn around to look upon the one who is speaking these words, verse 12. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now, the, the seven golden candlesticks probably were seven golden candlesticks, but they were symbolic of something else. They are symbolic of the churches. And in the midst, or in the middle of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. I like this because you picture Jesus. The first picture John sees of Jesus is not over here, not over there, not on a throne, none of that. He sees him in the midst of the churches walking. He's in the midst of the churches. When we come to church, are we aware that the Lord very well may be there walking in the midst of the church. Or are we, I'm distracted a lot because I run up and down all the time for the classes and the teachers. But if you get distracted, remember, you will sense the Lord in your inner man. If you can quiet your heart, quiet your spirit, and just sit there, sit before him. You may see him walk in the midst of the church. I had an experience when I was a young Christian, and I'll, I'll just share this very quickly. We were in, the church started in a Bible study, or actually was in a prayer meeting, prayer group. We were in a, in a house, and we were in a, a, a nice-sized room, not, not quite almost the size of this room here. All the windows were closed. All the doors were closed. The house was sealed. No furnace running or nothing. Everyone was seated. Everyone uh, on the floor, on on the sofa and chairs. And there was a, a distance between everyone. And the Lord came in a powerful way and walked in our midst. And you could sense... His movement, now you may not believe this, but I'll share it with you anyway. You could sense his movement 
Almost as though somebody walks, you ever see somebody, or been there and somebody walks by you and you can almost like sense their, their motion past you? You could feel it. And you could smell his fragrance. And it was there and then it disappeared, went somewhere else, and then it came back and it disappeared and then that was it. But he came and he walked in the midst. And the Lord can walk in the midst of the church. Verse 13, And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. Now, Many believe, remember, that John walked with Jesus for three to three and a half years. Now, if you're walking with somebody and you're living with them pretty much day and night, you can get to know them pretty well, wouldn't you say? I mean, every day. They believe that the, the book of Revelation was either written in A.D. 69 or A.D. 96, one of the two. Now, if it was written in A.D. 69, that means that John would have been a Christian for approximately 40 years. If it was written in AD 96, Christian 60 years. Is that right? Okay. Do you think walking with the Lord for 40 or 60 years, you could really get to know him? Yeah, you really would. When John sees the glorified, resurrected Christ... He is not seeing the same Jesus because he is, but he isn't. Jesus, the glory that was in Jesus, was veiled in flesh. And for the most part, they did not see that except when he performed miracles and he did certain things and he spoke. But for the most part, that was veiled in flesh. You could not see that. Jesus now... The veil of flesh is taken away, and he sees him in his fullness or in his glory here, and he's trying to describe what he sees, and he says his hair was white like wool, the purity of Christ, uh, white as snow. His eyes were as a flame of fire. Can you picture that? A flame, a flame of fire, the one that he walked with. And, and John's reaction, he, he is, he's been walking with the Lord for years. His reaction is verse 15. And his feet, well, let's continue on. His feet were like a defined brass, as if they had burned in a furnace, and his voice were as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength, and when I saw him, I said to him, Lord, why did I have to go through these things in this life? Lord, why, did, why is this? Why that? Why? Lord, when I go and I stand before the Lord, I'm going to ask, no, no, no. People that say that don't know the Lord in his glory. They have never seen the Lord in his glory. John falls at his feet as dead. And John was a Christian for 40 to 60 years. And walk with Jesus for three and a half. But the glorified Christ is before him. And John says, I fell at his feet as dead. It doesn't matter what I went through in this life. 
All the questions I have, why did you make me this way or that way? None of it is relevant. Why did I have to suffer this? Why did I have to stay here? Why couldn't I go? None of it's relevant because he sees the glorified Christ. The glorified Christ. See, if we just catch a small, small, small glimpse of Jesus, we will be changed. And we won't question the Lord know why this, why that. It's not going to matter. It's not going to matter. But the key is that we would see him somehow, some way, and not see our puny little lives. Puny isn't the best word to use, but you know what I'm saying. We look at ourselves, and, you know, it's all about us. Lord, I'm so, why? You know how it is, how we are. And I like this. He sees Jesus. There he is. He falls at his feet. And Jesus knows. He knows that you can't stand before him. You know, there's not going to be any question. All these people that are adamant and rebellious in the world, when they stand before the throne of God, not one of them is going to remain on their feet. Not one of them. It's going to be such a sight that they will not be able to accuse God, nothing, nothing. It's just, they're not going to be able to. It's just going to be so miraculous, marvelous. Jesus lays his right hand upon him saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. (laughs) Fear not. So there was probably some... Fear in John. He was afraid to even say anything. Afraid to stand. Afraid to stand. He fell at his feet as he laid there. He's like he was dead. Motionless. The glorified Christ. The one we serve. The one whose presence we invite. Oh, Christian. If we could only see him in a small way, somehow, Our hearts would be different. We would be different people. We would serve him with fervor. We would open up our heart wide and say, Lord, take out what you want because I don't want to stand before you looking into the the flame of fire in your eyes without a pure heart. Now back in verse 16, let's just go back there. He says, And he had in his right hand seven stars, And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Now, there are two scriptures in the Bible uh, that relate. Well, there's more, but there's two I want to show you. Turn to Hebrews 4. This is familiar to you. Hebrews 4, 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So there you see that same uh, phraseology piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So this refers to God's word and the effects of God's word, what it does, how it can affect you or whomever. (coughs) And in Ephesians 6, verse 17... This is about the armor of God. 
And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And by the way, um, the, the word take there, I believe, means receive. And there's a reason why, but I won't go into that. But anyway, so in, in the one verse in Hebrew, it's talking about the word uh, of God and its effect. This verse here tells you or shows you whose sword it is. Somebody tell me, read that. Latter part of verse 17. The sword of the Spirit, remember that. See, the sword may be placed in your hand, but it is to be used by the Spirit. See, the sword has slashing power in either direction. The swords back then had uh, a blade or, or a sharp edge on both sides. Not a one-sided sword, uh, you know, like some of them, uh, different uh, tribes used. But this, this was a double-edged sword. And it has two purposes. The one side can and is, is to be used for the enemies of God. God uses that. And he will even sometimes put that in your hands. He puts it in your hand, but you have to, to allow the Spirit of God to use that because it's a sword of the Spirit. And that can be used to cut the enemy, the enemies, whatever. The other part of the blade comes back and is used to cut the Christian. That's why it's a two-edged sword. So that many times the Lord will use the sword on you. Take unto you the sword of the Spirit. Well, okay, here it comes, Lord. You're, you're, you're swinging it because something needs to be cut out of my life. Okay, you need to receive that. Take that. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Remember, it's not your sword. Remember, Peter did that. He used the sword in the natural, and he cut off the servants here, and the Lord had to come back and, you know, oh, no, Peter, and Put the servants here. Well, Christians do that with, with the word of God. They take it and they whack people's ears off. And there's a bunch of people out there running around without ears because Christians whack them off. It is the sword of the Spirit. That means that it is to be used by the Spirit. You need to be sensitive to Him whenever the need arises to use that. So the two-edged sword goes both ways. You hear these people, oh, I'm going to get the sword and I'm going to battle. They forget that there's the blade on the other side. And sometimes we have our attitude, the blade is there for that, you know, to do a little dissecting. Now, look in uh, Proverbs. Let me read one verse here. You know this in Luke. It says where um, Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. Then, then Simon blessed, him, uh, blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall, but he will be a joy to many others. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. You hear that? Many will oppose him. He's sent as a sign. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your very soul. And you said that to Mary. So the sword moves in different directions. 
for different purposes. And um, in Proverbs, just one verse, <clears throat> Proverbs 5, verse 4, but her end is bitter as wormwood. wormwood. This is the harlot. Sharp as a two-edged sword. Now the difference here is this sword is to bring about death. See, that's, what, that's the purpose of it. That's what it does. Her sword. See, our sword will bring about death. But when God uses it, it's always to bring about life. That's the difference. There's the contrast. Okay, back to Revelation, and we'll finish reading this, this chapter, and we'll begin with chapter 2 next week. Verse 16. Oh, I wanted to look at one more thing. And, and well, I do have a few more scriptures. Verse 16, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Turn to Acts. Hmm, that's too many scriptures. Uh, let me go to 1 Timothy here. You can go to Acts 26. 1 Timothy 6, 16. Is that right? Yes. Who only hath immortality, speaking of Jesus, dwelling in a light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power and everlasting. Amen. This is Paul. So he says here that he uh, dwells or he inhabits inapproachable light. I don't even understand that. The, the glory of Christ is so uh, bright, intense, that Paul says that that light is unapproachable, inapproachable. John, you would think whenever he sees Jesus that, you know, oh, Jesus, I missed you so much. You know, all the good times we had walking, see a Galilee, <laughs> none of that stuff. No, he is in this inapproachable light. That's where he's dwelling, and John falls down before him. Paul says the same thing. It, it, you know, it's inapproachable. Now, we think we're going to go to heaven. We're going to tell the Lord this and that, and the other thing goes to show you how much we don't see. None of that's going to float. I guarantee it. It's not going to... It's, forget about it. Talk to the Lord now about it. But when you get there, you're not going to say anything about it, anything like that. No, why would you let me get four flat tires in one week? That's not going to matter. You know, why do I have to suffer this particular thing? We're going to, you know, we're going to see him, and it's going to be quite something. I just pray that two things. One, I don't go stand before him too soon and him say, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. Or I stand before him and I'm not pure. And I don't want that. I'd rather, I'd rather have the Lord purify me here than look into the eyes as a flame of fire and, and have to suffer the loss. Acts 26, verse 
9. <clears throat> now this is when Paul is defending, his defense, he's defending himself before Agrippa. I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. So Paul here is, he says midday, and that could be 12 to 3, somewhere in there, when the, sh the sun is shining in its brightness, in its intensity. And he, he says that the light that came was brighter than the noonday sun. See, we can't relate to that too much. But the light that he dwells in is brighter than the sun. Who can go out in a sunny day and look at the sun? You, you can't. You're, you'll damage your eyes. Well, you won't have that with Jesus, but he's much, much brighter than the sun. He's the creator of it. And you'll be able to look at him, but the intensity will be... I just wonder if, you know, just, you know, I just think about things sometimes, but I wonder, like, you, the, the sun, you can feel that, that heat, the intensity of that. I wonder if, in spirit, we will feel the intensity. I believe we will. We will feel the intensity of the one we stand before. Intense. No jokes. No sarcasm, no nothing. Talk about somber. <laughs> we'll be that. We'll be that. Let's go back to uh, Revelation and finish this. And when I saw him, verse 17, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and I have the keys of hell and of death. Or he has the keys, or he has the power over the invisible world. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So John has quite an eye-opening experience, so to speak, here in the first chapter. He sees the Lord who he had walked with and served for many, 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 many years. And he saw more than what he thought he was going to see. He saw Jesus in a way he never saw him before. I pray that you tonight, somehow, some way, the Lord would open your eyes.
that you would see him in a better way, a deeper way than you have before. Maybe this week, the Lord will come to you in a way and show you himself in a way you've never seen before.